We are goal-setting people. I did a quick search on Amazon.com the other day. Just typed in the word goals. And needless to say, my quick search returned literally tens of thousands of results. There were books about goals themselves. There were books about how to set your goals, books about how to achieve your goals. There were journals for which you could journal about your goal, I guess. There were goal-setting programs. There were the familiar names that you see associated with setting goals. There literally seemed like it was an endless supply of help available to us in order to set and achieve our goals. And makes you wonder why more goals aren't met, doesn't it? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not against setting goals. I believe we should set goals as long as we're setting the right kind of goals. For instance, I believe you should have a goal for reading the Bible. I believe you should have a goal for your prayer life. I believe you should have a goal for memorizing scripture. I, I believe you should have a goal for your generosity. And most of us do set goals. We may not have a formal process. They may not be written down or formalized in some fashion. But we all have goals. It may be a goal for our health. It may be a goal related to our career. It may be a goal to be in a relationship, to find a husband or a wife. Uh, parents, I pray that your goal is to raise your children for God's glory and to show them their need for Christ. I pray you have a goal to evangelize your children and to be used by God to bring them to Christ. Now, those are all worthy goals. For others, your goals are set by your employer. You don't have much control over them. It may be a sales goal or maybe some kind of production goal. Uh, but ne uh, nevertheless, uh, most people have some kind of goal that they're working towards. And again, there's nothing wrong with setting goals. I believe we should set goals. But I hope we understand this, that not all goals are equal. Goals, like everything else in life, must be prioritized. Which means that spiritual goals must always come before a physical goal. The goals of the Christian must always be different from the secular world. And obviously, as it pertains to our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, this is eminently biblical. Jesus himself said, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Unfortunately, many people, including many Christians, many Christians get the cart before the horse, and they worry about all the physical things before they worry about the spiritual things. Now, there is one goal that every Christian shares. Now, they may not realize it. They may not even pay any attention to it. But nevertheless, there's one goal that every Christian shares. And when we prioritize this goal, it brings honor to the Lord. Likewise, when we don't prioritize this goal, we bring dishonor to the Lord. Say, well, what is the goal? Well, I hope it's obvious from reading our text that the goal is to be like Jesus. The goal that every Christian must pursue with energy and exertion is the goal of Christ's likeness. The prize that every Christian must strive to possess is knowing Jesus and becoming like Jesus. And we see this repeatedly 
in the New Testament. Let me give you just two instances. For instance, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Like newborn infants, infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So why does the New Testament repeatedly encourage us to pursue sanctification and righteousness and holiness? Simply because our goal is to become like Christ, who is righteous and holy. Now, the struggle is that all believers have to deal with something called the law of indwelling sin. And this law of indwelling sin wages a constant war against us in our pursuit of Christ's likeness. So we have to understand that as we move towards the goal, as we strive for the goal, there's going to be opposition. Many times there's great opposition. This law of sin that indwells believers, you read about Romans 7, it is not going to lay down and play dead. It wants to hang on to the bitter end, and it will. So therefore... When we talk about becoming like Christ, we need to prepare for battle. We need to understand the challenge that lies ahead of us. You know, in our salvation, we are immediately justified. Say, what's that mean? It means that God forgives our sins and declares us to be righteous. That's justification. Now, our sanctification, which is what Paul's talking about here in this passage, our sanctification flows from our justification. Know this, sanctification is only made possible because of our justification. If you're trying to be sanctified apart from being justified, uh, you're on a fool's errand. It's just not going to happen. You know what Paul's words here do immediately do? They completely destroy and blow up the doctrine of sinless perfection. You know what that is? There are some who believe, there are churches and denominations that teach that because of a second helping of grace or a second blessing, that all of a sudden you no longer have to deal with sin. Sin is no longer a problem for you. There are many who believe that. I used to work with a Nazarene preacher who believed that. But Paul says, no way, Jose. <laughs> That's just not true. It's just not true. So how do we reach this goal of becoming like Jesus? How do we put it in the words of Paul, attain the prize of becoming like Jesus? Well, in our passage, Paul outlines all of the steps that are necessary in order for us to make progress towards the goal. He spells out the mindset. He spells out the attitude. He spells out the effort that is required from us if we are going to become like Christ. So where do we begin? Where do we begin in our understanding of all of this? Well, I think the place that we must begin is first and foremost, firmly fixing in our minds uh, a proper understanding, a knowledge, a realization of what the prize is. The prize is becoming like Christ. That is what Paul 
was willing to give up everything for. That is what Paul was willing to endure everything for. What Paul is willing to strive for is continual growth in holiness and righteousness. He wanted to be like Christ. He wanted to reflect the image of Christ. He wanted to echo the image of Christ each and every day of his lives. And that should be the same goal, the same desire of all those who profess faith in Christ. To be like Christ is to exhibit the spirit of Christ. So, well, what is the spirit of Christ? Well, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ. Therefore, to exhibit the spirit of Christ would be to exhibit what? The fruit of the spirit. How do we know when we are filled with the Holy Spirit? We know when we are filled with the Holy Spirit when we are controlled by the Holy Spirit. Say, you stay up all night thinking about that? No, I had lost an hour of sleep, so I didn't have time to do that. But that's the reality. How do I know if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit? It is not by some experience that I'm having, some electrifying experience that you know, just kind of makes me lose control. I would say that for people who are out of control, you're definitely not filled with the Holy Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Okay. So how will we know if we're being controlled by the Holy Spirit when our lives exhibit, again, the fruit of the Spirit? Let me remind you what the fruit of the Spirit is. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We know that we are filled with the Holy Spirit when we exhibit the characteristics described by Paul in Ephesians 5. He says in verses 18 and 19, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now what does that look like? A lot of people need to hear this. A lot of people need to wrap their minds around this. A lot of people out there blaming the Holy Spirit and claiming to do things in the Spirit that have nothing to do with the Spirit. So how do I know? Well, here it is, addressing one another in psalms and hymns, in spiritual songs, not slapping each other in the head, knocking each other down. Jeff sent me a video here, it's been some time ago, of this church service where people were just going crazy, and all of a sudden this guy comes flying out of nowhere, and he's slinging his sport coat, and next thing you know, he dives in the baptistry. That's not being filled with the Spirit. That's being filled with the Spirit of foolishness. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Controlled worship directed at the Lord. Not at yourself, not at your experience, not at some frenzy you've worked yourself into. The prize here, let's be clear, the prize is to become like Christ. So we know what the prize is. So we've got the what out of the way. So we're always back to the same question. How, how do we become like Christ? How can you and I like the apostle Paul press on to make this our own? Well, I've developed a little acrostic to help us kind of remember this here. And, um, the acrostic is fame. Now you may think it's lame, but it's actually fame. Amen. F A M E. So let me give you what they stand for, and then we'll look at each one of them. Fame. F is forgetfulness. A is for acknowledge. M is for motivation. And E is for effort. 
Now that I've planted that in your mind, uh, forget it because I'm not going to follow that. I'm going to follow the flow of the text, but each one of those come from the text. So there's uh, four letters there, and uh, I'm only going to deal with one of the four letters today, and that would be the letter A, the letter A. So here's the first part of it. To become like Christ, you must, number one, acknowledge your current condition. You must acknowledge your current condition. The first step in becoming like Christ is to do an honest and thorough evaluation of your current spiritual condition. And my wife has worked for J.P. Morgan Chase for years and years and years. And uh, every month she has to do a series of audits to make sure everything's in check, that make sure that everything's like it ought to be. I firmly believe as Christians... We need to, on a regular basis, do a spiritual audit. Where are we at spiritually? That's what Paul did. Look at the first part of verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. What's Paul saying there? He's saying, I haven't arrived. I've taken an honest look at myself. And I know that I've not yet arrived. I've not yet attained the prize. I've not yet reached the goal, but I'm willing to work for it. I'm willing to press on for the goal. So, well, what is the this that Paul refers to? He says, not that I've already obtained this. Well, if you remember from last week that in verse 11, Paul's desire was that by any means possible that he might attain the resurrection from the dead. And remember, we said that, that, that Paul desired to live in holiness and righteousness and purity. He wanted to exhibit those characteristics in his day-to-day -day existence, in his life. In other words, he wanted his conduct to stand out from the rest of the world. He wanted to live in such a way that he would be recognized as one who has, as if it already been spiritually resurrected from the dead, and he was that spiritually alive person walking amongst the spiritually dead. And we use the, the zombie illustration of that. That's the this that he says, I've not yet obtained this, but this is what I'm pressing towards. This is what I'm straining towards. This is the goal. I want to be like Christ. So Paul is honest here. He knows that he has not yet arrived at that degree of holiness. His life is not yet characterized by that level of righteousness. And now, when you, as you and I consider Paul's words here, as we consider his acknowledgement, I don't know about you, but I find myself right back in Romans 7. And what do we find in Romans 7? We cry out with Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Uh, we cry out like Paul the good that I want to do, I just can't seem to do it. If Paul, the great apostle Paul, freely admits that he has not yet arrived, what hope is there for us? What hope is there for us? Who among us would like to stand up and compare our spiritual lives to the life of Paul? I doubt that any of us would. So, we can look at this first part of verse 12 in two ways. There is a danger of looking at it in isolation. 
In other words, we kind of get we get tunnel vision, and we read not that I am all that not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, and so we look at it in isolation. And if we if we isolate Paul's words from the rest of the passage, and if we isolate Paul's words from the rest of the New Testament, guess what? We will be driven to despair. Because if Paul says, hey, I haven't arrived yet, I haven't obtained it yet, and we know the level of his spirituality, we see the life that Paul lived, and then we look at our own lives, we say, I'm hopeless. But you know well enough not to look at this in isolation, you look at it in what? In context. So if we look at this in context, both with what Paul says here in the entire passage, as well as what the New Testament says, Guess what? You trade your despair for motivation. Paul looks at his shortcomings, and what does he do? He's determined to move forward. So you read this, and you're faced with a choice. You either have to choose despair or motivation. Now, please, I'm asking you as your pastor, please listen carefully. Here's the lesson that Paul is teaching us here. And it is an important lesson for us as Christians. It's a lesson that perhaps we need to remind ourselves of over and over again. Here it is. Paul, in spite of not being what he desires to be, he does not let that keep him from moving forward from pressing towards what he desires to be. Does that make sense? Just because he isn't at this point in his life what he wants to be, he doesn't let that stop him from keeping moving forward to being what he wants to be. In other words, in other words, in other words, he does not let his present circumstance his present situation paralyze him. And that's what many Christians do. They look at themselves, they look at their current situation, they feel like they haven't made much progress, and what do they do? They want to shut down. Perhaps they think, I've worked so hard, I've been saved X amount of years, but yet I still seem to be stuck on this same spot. Fine, you may be stuck, but you're not stuck permanently. Paul did an honest evaluation of where he was at. He said, yes, I haven't yet obtained what I want to obtain, but I'm not going to let that stop me. Listen, as believers, we need to pull up our bootstraps and just suck it up and start with some determination to keep moving forward. Look at the life of Paul. Did he let anything stop him? Beat me, I'm moving forward. Shipwreck, I'm moving forward. Now think about Paul being shipwrecked. Let's say that you were on that ship and it goes down, it breaks up. You're a mile or two away from the coast. What would you do? Would you say, oh, well, it must be God's will for me to drown? Or would you strike out for sure? What did Paul do? He struck out for the shore. You think he liked being in cold, icy water? I doubt it. But he did not let that hinder him from pressing on towards the goal. He wasn't going to do that. 
Listen, God is not honored when we give up. God is not honored when we look at ourselves and we see our shortcomings and we say, oh, well, I guess I'll never be much for God. I guess I'll never do much for God. I've got all these problems. I've got all these, this baggage. Oh, well, I guess I'll just stop. God is not honored by that. Listen, don't you think that God knew about all of your problems and all of your baggage when he saved you? You didn't catch him off guard. And he saved you. So therefore, to quit on God and not put forth the effort that for God, it doesn't honor God, it dishonors him. So the first step is to acknowledge your current condition, be honest with yourself. Now, there are two dangers here. Here's the first danger. The first danger, as you're evaluating yourself, could be that you overestimate your spiritual condition. You know, at the, at the end of every year, uh, our insurance company makes us take an online survey and it uh, returns our age according to what we put on the survey. Well, as I'm going through the survey, I think, dude, this is going to pop back. I'm 45. It hasn't happened yet. Why? I overestimate my current condition. Spiritually, lots of people do the same thing. They overestimate their current spiritual condition. There's a very real danger of thinking more of ourselves than we should. There's a danger that this is a danger that all of us have to acknowledge. We all have spiritual blind spots. We are like the, you know, those horses that have the, the blinders on. We just see a certain amount of things. We only have a very limited field of vision. I'm afraid many Christians are like the Pharisee described by Jesus who said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. They overestimate their spiritual condition. That Pharisee, he definitely had spiritual blinders on. He drastically overestimated his spiritual condition. I think of the rich young ruler. Did he overestimate his spiritual condition? Yeah. He thought he was perfect. He thought, man, just open the gates of heaven. Here I come. What was the problem here? Well, he was using the wrong standard of measure. See, the Pharisee, like the Pharisee, he was comparing himself against other men. And in comparison to other men, he looked pretty good. And we all can find somebody that we're better than, or at least we think we're better than. But see, the standard of comparison is not another human being. The standard of comparison is God. The standard of comparison is God's law. The standard of comparison is the righteousness of Christ. So we have to use the right standard of comparison. So how can we avoid this danger of overestimating our spiritual condition? Let me give you three things. Number one, seek the help of the Holy Spirit. Pray the prayer of the psalmist who said, who can discern his heirs? You know what he's saying there? I know I can't. I need some divine help. I need the help of the Holy Spirit. What is the psalmist acknowledging here? The psalmist is acknowledging that there are times in our lives, perhaps more frequently than we would want to realize, there are times in our lives when we sin, but yet we don't recognize it. 
So he says, I need the help of the Holy Spirit to help me recognize these sins that I've committed. You know, the Bible teaches that there are two kinds of sin, if I can put it this way. First, there are the sins that we're familiar with. It's the sins that we commit, the things that we do. We violate God's law. We lie, we cheat, we steal, whatever. But there's another aspect of sin that has to do with not doing the things that we should do. When I fail to love my neighbor, I sin. When I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I sin. I sin because I failed to do what I knew I should be doing. I sin when I do the things I know I shouldn't be doing. And so the psalmist looks to the Holy Spirit to help him, says, who can discern his errors? Well, you can, Holy Spirit. Help me understand those areas of my life, those things that I have done, either I have done or left undone, that are sinful. We need to be like Job who said, teach me what I do not see. So first of all, we want to seek the help of the Holy Spirit. Second, we need to stay in the scriptures. Stay in the scriptures. Remember what the writer of Hebrews teaches us in Hebrews 4? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of morrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, we may do something, we may not give it a second thought, but then we come to Scripture, and the Holy Spirit uses the sword of the Spirit to open us, to lay us wide open, and to show us what our true motivation was there. It wasn't to glorify God. It was to glorify ourselves. It wasn't to love our neighbor. It was to love ourselves. See, but if we never go to the Scriptures... If we never have regular intake of the scriptures, the Holy Spirit's not going to be able to perform this work in us. Third, we need to seek the counsel of another Christian who knows us well and may be able to help you see those areas that you may be blind to. Now, this is painful, admittedly. Nobody likes to get bad news, and very few people like to be held accountable for just about anything. But this is one of the ways that somebody else can help us see our spiritual shortcomings. Now, if you're married, you got to build an accountability partner. Now, I don't mean that jokingly, but it's, it's, it's true. You know, um, that's part of how husbands and wives relate in, in a spiritual way. Don't be afraid of that. Okay. I would, re- now, I don't know about you all. I would much rather hear bad news from my wife than somebody else. Amen. I mean, hopefully she'll temper it with love. Hopefully. Yeah. So the first danger is overestimating our spiritual condition. Now, what's the second danger? The second danger is underestimating our spiritual condition. There are believers who either because of their temperament or because they have a sensitive conscience Uh, They continually beat themselves down. They continually beat themselves up. And as a result of these continual beatings, they tend to underestimate the ongoing work of God in their lives. They believe they've not made much progress in sanctification, when in in reality, uh, they may have made significant progress in sanctification. 
They may not believe that they've grown in righteousness when in fact they have grown greatly in righteousness. They might, may not believe that they're making any progress at all in becoming like Christ when in reality is they are in fact becoming like Christ. So here's what I want us to do for just a moment or two. Let's do a little mental exercise. I want you to think back. Depend, now, this will depend somewhat upon your age. If you came to Christ, say, in your teen years or as an adult, I want you to think back to that time when you weren't a Christian. Now, perhaps you were saved as a child. That's okay. I want you to think back over the time that you have been saved. And for both groups, I want you to think about the changes that you have seen that have taken place in your life since you came to faith in Christ. Now, if you say, I don't think I've changed at all, then did you ever come to faith in Christ? Because when a person comes to faith in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has what? Gone. All things have become new. So think, think about this for just a moment. For instance, let me give some examples. Did you at one time struggle with your temper, but now since you become a Christian, you have been able to exert more control over your temper? temper? If you have, that's a sign of growth. How about your tongue? Did you have a sharp tongue or a bitter tongue or a negative tongue or a criticizing tongue? But now you realize that your speech has become softer. And you don't criticize as often as you once did. Guess what? That's a sign of growth. Did you struggle with lust or anxiety or jealousy? But now you find that you're slowly making progress and overcoming those sins. Guess what? That's a sign of growth. Now, I realize those are only a few, exa a few examples, but I pray that the Holy Spirit would use those examples to perhaps bring to your mind other areas of your life that you have struggled with in the past, and now all of a sudden you say, hey, wait a minute. What used to be a tremendous problem for me isn't quite such a problem anymore. What is that? That's a sign of sanctification. By the way, you know the only... Let me, I don't want to say it that way. But a proof of justification is your sanctification. A proof of your election is your sanctification. So you look at these things and you say, you know what? I have been making progress. I am growing in these areas. Remember this. Spiritual children, like physical children, cannot help but grow. Can I say that again? Spiritual children, like physical children, cannot help but grow. There are no spiritual rocks. Somebody got a little frisky here behind the building yesterday, and I don't know how they did it or why they did it or why they would waste their time doing it, but they threw out about 200 rocks out of the, from behind the building. So Ben and I cleaned the rocks up this morning. You know what? You know what never happened? Not one of those rocks tried to get away from us. Why? Dead. Dead. No life. See? Christian will grow. Why? Because they are alive. You know, 
again, children just just can't help but grow. Sherry and I often talk about how fast our grandbabies are growing up. Carson's already seven. Nora's already five. Harper's three. Junior will be three. Daniel soon be five. Hannah soon be two. Lily soon be four. Cooper soon be born. You know. They grow. Why? Because they're alive. So what's the remedy for those who find themselves in a position of underestimating their spiritual condition? Well, I'm going to recommend the same help as I did for those who overestimated their spiritual condition. Number one, seek the aid of the Holy Spirit. Remember this, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. Now, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but look at verse 15 here in our passage. Paul writes, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will what? Reveal that also to you. So again, Paul points them to the Holy Spirit to help them understand where they are at. And so if you fall into that class of people who tend to underestimate your spiritual condition, go to the Holy Spirit and let him help you out. Look to the Holy Spirit. Ask him to help you see the growth that he's been producing in your life. You know, you know, folks, we all need a win. Amen. We all need a win. And you know what a lot of little wins add up to? A big win. Tom Brady won his seventh Super Bowl. But that wasn't the only game he won all year, was it? He never would have won the big one unless he won the little ones all along the way. See, far too many of us are looking for the big score. We want the big win. Why don't we take the little win? There's a lot more little wins in life than there are big wins. And thank the Holy Spirit for the little wins. Every time he helps you overcome temptation, thank him and put a mark in the win column. Over time, you begin to look at your graph of life. And what do you see? You see an upward trend. Yeah, there may be a dip here or there along the way, but overall you see it moving upward. You see all the little wins. You see the progress that you've made. By the way, this is a good reason to keep a journal. Okay? Keep a journal. Record your struggles and record your victories. So, well, what good does that do? Well, number one, it reminds you of the progress that you are making. And number two, when you struggle in that same area again, what do you do? You go back to the journal and say, you know what? Holy Spirit helped me overcome that then. He will help me overcome that now. You know, we think of journaling and we think, oh, I got to write uh, 35 pages a day about my life. My life's not that interesting. Granted, my life's not that interesting either. But we can jot down one or two things that the Holy Spirit has helped us with. Second reason is to say in the scriptures, look to the scriptures for the truth of who you are in Christ. This is so important. We, when we begin to underestimate who we are, begin to underestimate our spiritual condition, we need to go back to the scriptures. Let me give you these things. I've given these to you before, but I'll remind you again. Start with Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I have been done deal. I have been crucified with Christ. That is a reality. It is no longer I who live. That is a reality. But Christ who lives in me, that is a reality. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Now, out of that, there are at least three things that flow that I want to remember. Number one, I want to remind myself that I have been forgiven, forgiven from the penalty of sin because Jesus died for me. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act. He didn't wait for us to get it all together. He died for us while we were still sinners. Second, remind yourself that you have freedom from the power of sin because you died with Christ. This is so important. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Sin has no power over you except the power you give it. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Holy Spirit is far more powerful than sin. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. You see that? Die to sin. Say, so what's the Bible mean when I die to sin? You die to the power of sin. It no longer has power over you. Next time it wants to exert its power, say, uh-uh, unauthorized, access denied, and live to righteousness. Finally, remind yourself that by faith, you will allow Jesus Christ to live through you. 2 Corinthians 2.14. If you didn't write down any other reference today, write this one down. This is a great reference. But thanks be to God, Paul says, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. You know what that means? Victory. Jesus, Tom Brady may have seven Super Bowls, but Jesus is the ultimate winner. Okay? Lee all, always leads us in triumphal procession. Jesus will never lead you in what? Defeat. Do you believe that? And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And thirdly, same as before, seek the counsel of another Christian. I, I remember a time in, in uh, Bible college where I was having some serious struggles. And I went to, uh, some people know this, this fellow, he was a great singer, Earl Kicklighter. Earl was like a big old teddy bear. And I loved Earl. And uh, sat down and talked with Earl. And uh, he helped me understand some things about myself. See? Talk to your discipleship partner. Don't suffer alone in silence here. There's help available. All right, here's your homework. You ready? Schedule some time where you can take your Bible Get alone with your Bible, spend time in prayer, asking the Lord to show you where you are at spiritually. Okay? Then, when you've done that, ask someone close to you to help you see any blind spots that you may have. And then thirdly, and I really, really mean this, begin to keep a record of your spiritual victories. It may be so small, you may think it's so insignificant, but again, you're building here. As a Bengals fan and a Reds fan, 
I know the value of any victory. Amen. And spiritually, all victories have value. Keep a record of your spiritual wins. So in order to become like Christ, in order to win the prize, in order to achieve the goal, you must first begin by acknowledging your current situation. 